going to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our job. Oh, hello. And welcome to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Alongside me, as always, on Mondays, Troy. Moody Mondays. How you doing, man? Uh, better. Now, yeah, you're having a little tickle in the throat as well? Yeah, I got a hitch in my giddy-up as well. Oh, no. I hate it when a hitch gets in my giddy-up. Yeah. It's like a spur in my side. It's like I'm no longer riding the horse. I am the horse, and my body starts to ride me. I'm, I'm hoping for more horse puns. More horse puns? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeehaw. We're beginning the show. Oh, and, you know, the thing happened in Hawaii uh, this weekend, like that false alarm. You yeah. know, we've done a whole show about the rise of nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation, the moral ramifications, how it is a technological marvel, and we've sort of started taking it for granted these years. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but I, you know, imagine what people were doing, who took it seriously in that 38 minutes. How many people thought they were having the last conversation of their lives? Right. And who confessed? All sorts of things. Oh. But we'll get to that in a second. That's called a tease, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. What I really want to talk about to open this show, see what you think about this, is a symptom of what is wrong with our society. And I mean it. How litigious and idiotic. How many mongoloid imbeciles do we have walking around? Here's what I mean. My roommate's girlfriend, very sweetly, went and picked up a king cake. You know king cake. Yeah. Mardi Gras. Yeah. It almost is like a, a cinnamon roll. Tasty choke hazard. Oh, it's delicious. And we get the king cake. I'm like, oh, king cake's here. It's a once a year thing. I'm like, go into the kitchen. And on top of the king cake, in a little plastic bag, is the tiny baby. You didn't like that? No, it needs to be in the cake. See, that's where we disagree, sir. No, okay, you're giving in to the weak and the brittle among us. When you buy a king cake, you need to be informed that there's a tiny baby in that cake. You know what's not weak and brittle? Mm. Tiny plastic Jesus. I agree he's not weak and brittle, but when you buy a king cake, you should know that the king of peace, Emmanuel, might be in your cake. Yeah, and pretty soon, so will pieces of my teeth. <laughs> no, I, I, I examined this tiny plastic baby because it wasn't in the cake. It, you had the opportunity to do so. But you put it in. You have to put it in. No, when I get a king cake, I want it in there. I want it to be a mystery. That's the whole point. I don't want to know where the baby is. I want to be surprised where the baby is. And it makes me eat that sultry. And yes, I did use the word sultry. I know it isn't usually applied to food, but when I I nibble on the crumbles of king cake... It does force you to nibble. Yeah, it makes you appreciate your cake when the baby is in there and you don't know where it is. Right. But when you're the one who put it in, you lose all sense of surprise. As opposed to your life. Right. I'm saying you have to... You should be aware. 
You should be aware. I'm, I'm wondering who ate the damn cake, didn't realize there's a little plastic Jesus in there, a little baby Jesus, and choked or something. Somebody did the Heimlich and go, you know what we need to do? We need to sue. No, you're the one who ate the cake with the baby. Take some self-responsibility. Mm-hmm. It just was driving me mad all weekend. And maybe I'm just being a callous a-hole over here. But I didn't think we were going to disagree on this. Well, would you rather tiny baby Jesus be on the outside of the cake or inside of the cake, but you're forced to sign a contract? Uh, inside of the cake? I thought it was already... You're going to have to sign a contract, though. Why? Well, they don't want you to read the fine print, but essentially it's going to say, you will not sue us if tiny baby Jesus kills you. I thought it was understood. Maybe it's our Catholic upbringing. I thought it was very well understood that when you order king cake with all its glittery majesty and all those that that purple and yellow and green, it's Mardi Gras. And in the king cake is a tiny plastic baby. And whoever finds a tiny plastic baby has to buy the king cake next year. And to see it on the outside, not inside, it spoiled the fun. Now, maybe Andrew's girlfriend should have put it in the cake before she brought it inside, and I wouldn't be talking about this for 10 minutes. She didn't know. She didn't know that you would be so upset about well, this. And so was Jonathan. I heard them in the, in that, the kitchen. That makes sense. That, that, it makes sense that he would be up. That's something that he would get upset about. Yeah, we were yelling across the house. It was very upsetting. It was very upsetting. I don't know. I just There's so many jokes coming up in my head right now, but they're just... Inappropriate? <laughs> There's an implied choking hazard with yeah, Catholicism. Well. Oh, well. Oh, my. Oh, my. But I am wondering. You know, it's like that scene in... You remember the movie Almost Famous? Vaguely. Where the kid, he's very young, but he convinces Rolling Stone he's going to write this article on this one band. And so he starts traveling around with this band and the groupies. Uh, or the muses, excuse me. And uh, there's this one scene near the end where they're on one of these small single-engine planes, and they experience incredibly scary turbulence. They all think, even the pilot's freaking out over the PA system, so they're all thinking, we're going to die. And so they start confessing all sorts of things. I'm sorry I slept with your wife, and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm sorry I stole this from you, and I beat you up when you were sleeping. I just made that up. Why would you beat somebody up while they're sleeping? They'd probably find out as soon as you started to beat them up that you were beating them up. They would wake up. Anyway, they just confess all these things. They think, we're going to die. Let's get our conscience clean. Let's just have it out. And then the, after they do all the confessions, the turbulence stops. And they know every dirty little secret about one another. I'm wondering what happened in that 38 minutes when it came to Hawaii. But the nukes have been fired. They're heading right for you. We don't have a missile defense system. You're going to die. Take shelter. And I wonder how many people... What would your reaction be? Well, I would make a couple of phone calls. Yes. I love yous. Things like that. Mom, dad. You. Hopefully me. Yeah. 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 Toby. He doesn't have a phone, but... Toby, your cat. Yeah. Well, of course. I'm... Look, Mr. Nipples needs to know that I love him. Well, and the red and fuzzy big booty Buddha, Mr. Gimli, I would do the same for him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hey, put me on speaker. 
Okay, I don't got a lot of time here. There's a nuke coming. Just want to let you know that I love you. Okay, bye. That kind of thing. Hmm. And then... I, I don't know if I can say it on air. Okay. Does it have to do with S-E-X? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Cheeky. Oh, wow. wow. I mean, why not? Right. But would you, you know, go all Diogenes, the Cynicum folks, and just go outside in public? And... No, I would fill a bathtub with water. Oh, yeah, okay. I would fill a bath... And this has nothing to do with yeah. the hand motion I just showed you. Yeah. No, I would fill a bathtub with water because in the event that I do survive... Uh, that's water that I can boil. Hmm. And then, assuming I didn't have anything that could take my mind off of what was about to happen, I would probably start freaking out and trying my best to survive. Now, you and I, we didn't have what our parents had during the Cold War with right. the nuclear tests and everything. And I saw videos in Hawaii. It was these parents were, they took a manhole cover off of. The sewer, yeah. Yeah, and they were putting their children in there. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. Probably just for me, geographically speaking, I feel like if a nuke hit Hawaii, you'd have to worry about a lot more than just the fallout and the radiation. Right. Um, now, depending on what island in Hawaii it landed on, you'd, you'd have to worry more about the volcanoes and stuff. But I would, I would worry about water, like yeah. especially if you're going to put someone in the sewer system. But then again, you don't really have a lot of time to put your head on straight and think about what to do. I mean, that's it stands to reason that that's good shelter. Right. But people go crazy in those sorts of situations. Like, you think you're prepared. Right. You've thought it through. But you do not know in one of those fight-or-flight situations, in this case really just flight, what you're going to do. Some people freeze. I hope I don't become that guy. Well, it would never occur to me that I need to confess things. Right. Um... You know, I would. That's interesting. I wouldn't. I don't. I wouldn't be like, "Hey, <laughs> this is where I screwed up." Yeah, let me clean my conscience here. Yeah, it would be more like I need to tell some people how much they mean to me, and that if this is goodbye, then hopefully I can impart that these people mean a yeah. lot to me. I mean, I might take on a very fatalistic point of view. We're at, it's actually, I was at, we were at Auburn still, um, and it was a late night class. It was like 7 o'clock at night, and the tornado sirens go off. Mm -hmm. And a few of the young women in the class had never been through a tornado warning. Like, what do we do? Oh, my oh, God. Man. And I'm, I was, of course, being very callous. And it's like, what if it hits where we're staying? I'm like, well, then it hits where we're staying. Like, we do the best we can. We hide out. Like, when it's something like that, you do the best you can. And if you prepare yourself and it still hits you, what are you going to do? Like, let's not worry ourselves to death over this. If we die, we die. Just calm down. Yeah. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And it's a lot easier for me to take that perspective than it is to take the worrying perspective. Yeah. But I can have some empathy to that. Oh, yeah. No, and it, that wasn't very comforting to them. I'm like, but you just, you can't, you can't worry yourself to death. You really can't. They're, you're not in control of this. We're going to be safe, probably, and especially the Haley Center, like, underground there. I mean, we'll be fine. Right. Uh, but stop freaking out. And it didn't even hit anywhere in Auburn, I believe, that particular night. I had a, I had a couple like that in the student center when I was at the Foy desk. Mm. And we were in charge of, like, uh, 
getting everybody together. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we would run through the precautions and everything. There were certain rooms in the student center, all of which were on that bottom floor there underground, that you would take them, and you'd have to go into the hallways and everything. But we were in charge of rounding them up. They didn't give us lassos. Found that to be unfortunate. Yeah. But, you know. Just well, you are a natural cowboy. They, you'd probably be too efficient with a lasso. I suppose that's true. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to tie too many people up. It's the wrong view, especially on campus. Yeah. Current zeitgeist. Yeah. Just get out of here with the ropes. That wouldn't wouldn't fly. Yeah, ropes are way too much. Especially you, as skilled as you are with ropes. Now, it makes me think of uh, John, John Hales. Mm. He was in Tuscaloosa uh, when that huge tornado went through there. And I probably, if a nuclear strike is coming towards me, would take the same exact tact that he did. Like, he lived, like, an apartment a block off the strip. So he could see this huge tornado, what he thought was going to hit the stadium. Going to hit Bryant Denny. I mean, it was a little further off than that. But yeah. his decision was, am I going to go inside and hide in the bathtub? Or, nope. So what he did is he went inside, he cracked open a beer, and he sat on his front porch. Mm-hmm. It's like, if this thing's going to hit me, it's going to hit me. Well, if I recall, that was, like, the third or fourth tornado that they had had in recent months. Mm. So people had taken to having quote-unquote tornado parties. And that's just not a good idea. No, I mean, you don't want to be running towards it. No. I mean, I, I do take some precautions, but a well, nuclear like if, strike... If you're going to crack a beer, do it in the tub. Right, okay. Uh, I'm just enough. saying, increase the probability of survival. Fair enough. It's just, a nuclear strike is something so different. Like, you I almost don't want to live through one. You can't outrun that, no. Right. And, like, if you do live, you're dealing with all, like you said, the radiation, poisoning, like, is you've the water got, supply poison? You've got the fallout. Yeah. You have to make sure that you don't look at it when it happens, because you will go blind. Yeah. If you do survive... And somehow you're not irradiated to the point where you die of cancer within a day or two. You've then got to find shelter that's not irradiated. You've got to find clean water that's not irradiated. Mm. You've got to find food that's not irradiated. You've got to look for other people that also aren't irradiated. You've got, I, I mean, and you're on an island. So essentially you are... Well, well, and what's crazy is that we're going through all these steps. Like, what would you do in that situation? And yet, these weapons are the basic guarantor of security for pretty much all the big boy nations around the world. It's like, how secure are we actually? And I think we've talked about this before, but the whole idea of if you are in government, like at the highest level, hmm. do you want to be the person who gets to go into the highly secured bunker? Or do you want to stay outside? With your and help those that you love. Probably depends on who's in office. <laughs> True. Yeah. Who are you? I don't want to be in a bunker with this person. Get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, I, and that's what's amazing is the governments, the people who run the governments, probably fine. They've got their bunkers. They probably have all sorts of supplies to last for years. Mm-hmm. It's the population who are essentially put on the nuclear front lines, and it's why actually John Kelly is the chief of staff for Trump. And uh, when reports came out that Trump wanted them to build uh, the arsenal back up to 30,000 nukes, Kelly said, well, number one, that's not true. He didn't ask me to do that. And if anything, what I've heard this president say about nuclear weapons is I wish they didn't exist. Which made me go, hmm, 
gives me some comfort. But you look at, again, the situation with North Korea, and maybe the Olympics is what's going to bring everybody together. I tried that with the World Cup. Oh, really? They tried that with previous Olympics. And it didn't work. Well, no, this is just, you know, that one-page playbook we talked about? It's part of that playbook. Yeah. Now they got to spread goodwill before they get back to fear-mongering because they can profit off the goodwill, or rather, they can feed their peoples. Mm. And when that goodwill runs out, then it's time to bring the fear back up. Try and hold its population hostage, so to speak. Well, and it, it brings me to, I told you over the weekend, texted you, that I've been reading, like, uh, trying to, at least, Carl Jung, mm-hmm. his student, Eric Newman, and Jung and Newman are, well, they wrote in German, so the translation, it's really clunky reading, it's very technical in detail, like they're fighting the battles of the time, and a lot of the stuff that's valuable today, you can read certain chapters and find it, but uh, one guy who's taken a lot of their uh, work is Jordan Peterson. Now, everything Jordan Peterson says, I'm not sure if I agree with, but... The name sounds familiar. He was, he kind of had this controversy in Canada when he refused to call somebody by all the 30 new gender-neutral pronouns they've come up with. Oh, okay. He was like, I mean, that's... He thought it was ridiculous. Not the idea of the new pronouns, though he did find that a little absurd, but the idea that you're now going to enforce this in law. That if you don't call somebody by their preferred pronoun, you're in trouble. Legally. Mm-hmm. He's like, that is not cool. Like, he hated it, and he spoke out against it. And so he became this hero of the alt-right, or whatever. And I've listened to the guy, and I don't know. He doesn't seem like your typical person on the alt-right. Can you imagine all of a sudden getting picked as a hierophant, though? Just because you took a stand over something as, as such as personal pronouns, and all of a sudden you have this group of yeah. detestable people that are like, hey, we like you a lot. Right. And, now, and a lot of his work is focused on helping men. He didn't set out to do that, mm-hmm. but he said most of the people that watch his speeches, watch his lectures, are uh, young men from 18 to 29, 30 years old. Because a lot of young men find that they're not going through what he describes as like the hero's journey. They're not challenging themselves uh, enough. And Peterson has this uh, incredible point of essentially we have to take on burdens in our lives and strive for some higher goal in order to, well, really find ourselves. I mean, that's the hero's journey. Now, he, he looks at each individual person and he's dealt with folks who are addicted. He's dealt with folks who have you know, real diagnosed, you know, mental health issues. And so he's not like, oh, everybody has to pick the same goal. Um, but he has been very powerful to a lot of folks to say, you know, here's how you can set your life on the right track. And he's got a new book coming out called The 12 Rules for Life. Just simple things. And I was actually taken aback at, after trying some of the things I've listened to and uh, his lecture series, like clean your room. Make sure it's stable. Mm-hmm. And he gave this whole sophisticated argument for that, that essentially when we're going through the world, what we're focused on is pretty much all we're thinking of. And everything else around us is a model. So if you are in your room and your room's messy and it's not something that has a place that you put it in, so clothes, trash, whatever, it's literally like a snake jumping out at you or a potential one. Your periphery's reacting. So you're never settled in your own place. Um, but this lecture series I watch is on his book uh, that sort of takes from Young, and it's called Maps of Meaning is his book. 
And the first question he asked, and the reason I went on this whole little tangent here, is it reminds me of North Korea and so much of what's going on. also reminds me of the rise of China. Peterson started to really think about value systems, political, moral, and otherwise. And he said, are relativists correct? That all value systems are just really a matter of opinion or their arbitrary whim? Or is there some way we can actually rank one value system against another? And the reason he thought of this is the Cold War. It's like, is it really just the Soviets have their opinion of how society should work? And the United States and the West has their opinion, and this is eventually just going to come to some sort of fight? Or is there some way to glean which is better for people? And so it led him down this road of, uh, how can I actually judge you know, this whole society? And what he goes to is uh, essentially archetypes. He goes to, what are the reoccurring themes in our lives throughout societies, throughout cultures, that suggests people go through the similar things and what helps them benefit. Um, and I thought it was, um, I think it is fascinating. He, he essentially says that, yeah, you can differentiate to a certain extent um, what's going to be better for a person on average. That if you have somebody who's constantly uh, dependent, who isn't striving in life, who really has nothing to work towards that they're not going to be the happiest person in the world. So, I'm, this is what I've, I've gathered from this. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's essentially distilling archetypes from societies from a psychological focus in order to glean whether or not there are value systems in a particular society that are better than, say, a value system in another particular society? Yes. Interesting. Dangerous, yeah. but interesting. Yeah, well, and that's the danger with all of these things, is that once you set a standard, it's like, are you sure that standard's correct? I mean, but once you set a standard, I, I think you have to. That you, there's you have to set a standard. At a certain point, you do. Like, why do I choose to do this than that? Why do I choose to be a Christian as opposed to a Muslim? I can a, appreciate that on an individual level, but on right. a societal and cultural level? Well, and this is where the nuance comes in. He says that I'm not saying that we need to have some sort of top-down system. Because right. he's very much against the state. He's, as he says, the state often becomes the tyrannical father archetype. That if you rely solely on the state, solely on central power, it will become tyrannical, no matter how well-intentioned it is. Right. And he gives all sorts of examples throughout history, and I tend to agree with that. The biggest being the power vacuums that communism leaves. Right, exactly. Uh, now, what he's getting at is, no, that what he found distinguishes good systems is how does you create dignity for the individual? So how do you take the personal decision... And where the personal decision isn't just some arbitrary thing you chose. I'm just picking this fashion and that flavor. But no, how can you connect your personal, uh, you know, your actual personality, your temperament, how you're built? Because some of that's all, you know, very much built in. And connect that to what he terms what Jung and Newman called the transpersonal. So where do you fit into this larger story? And how do you find meaning for your life out of that? And so Peterson looks at Christianity in many ways, has done a wonderful job giving dignity to the individual. He's not talking about specific manifestations like, 
this government run by Christians was the greatest thing in the world. He's talking about just the story and what the story suggests to how you can make sense of your role in a larger world. Right. So I see where you're going, coming from, where it, it could be dangerous. It, well, it, it just seemed to me like he was trying to establish a basis of distilling value systems. From It, it was almost like, instead of deductive reasoning, it was reductive reasoning. Hmm. He was reducing, or distilling, as I said earlier, these societal and cultural things, based on your explanation anyway, these societal and cultural norms, he was distilling them into archetypes. And then from that reduction, he was showing how people create value systems in archetypes and how you could then judge which value system is better based off of the archetypes that he had already right. distilled from different societies. That's dangerous to me because it allows for a lot of abuses just like a lot of left-wing thought does and right-wing thought they they allow for abuses and corruptions because you can't be consistent with these things right well and his very the very thing he's reacting to is ideology uh he he goes on to say that i'm not trying to create and he's, he brings up the very objection you just brought up that especially with this sort of What's the, the eternal archetype in all these stories throughout history? So that can be very sloppy, especially if you aren't tied down anyway. So what he tries to do is uh, take several forms of verification or proof. Can we do this psychological test established by this guy, this other type of test established by this person? Can you show that this particular thing, phenomenon, is happening by testing it from all different sorts of angles, not just the... Jungian archetypes, right? Uh, so you know, can you do an actual experiment and observe people's behavior? Um, and for a lot, his actual work had nothing to do with politics; it had to do with addicts. And he's noticed, you know, that you know they, they brought up lab rats when they have cocaine, or you know, they become these fiends and they want more and more and more. And he pointed out, and he actually translated pretty well into people: that the the rats only go for the coke when they're completely isolated and alone and miserable already. Mm-hmm. And he found treating actual cocaine addicts, people, that that was often the case. These folks were already just miserable for one reason or another. They had had a terrible childhood or they put off something about their life that came back and really hurt them. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. And so because they're already in this place of, I'm hurting, they went for the quick fix. Right. As opposed to, okay, how can I reevaluate what I'm valuing um, and essentially restructure what I value in the world? Like, I want to be a good person. Well, what does it take to be a good person? And you work through each little step. Right. And it's amazing uh, where he, he has a great blow against ideology. Like, here are the rules. And I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to his book, 12 Rules to Live By, 12 Rules for Life. Because I imagine these rules aren't going to be like, the Ten Commandments. They're not going to be like some ideological school. They're going to be more, uh, if you do these things and you set these basic goals, you'll probably be better off in life, more than likely. Critical analysis of why things happen rather than yes. things happen. Right. It's like something happens, let me explain it. He's Instead, he's going to say, this has happened. Here's what led up to why this happened. Well, he, he makes a great point in this way. He analyzed Pinocchio from his archetypal model. 
And first off, Pinocchio is a crazy ass cartoon, man. Mm-hmm. Like I forgot how much happens in that movie. But there's this great point where the Jiminy Cricket says, "I want to be his conscience to the Blue Fairy," and she goes, "All right, you can be his conscience." And the Cricket immediately gets on his soapbox, like I think a literal soapbox, and starts lecturing Pinocchio. Here's how it is to be a good person. Pinocchio doesn't hear a word of it. And, it, and essentially what's going on is that you, your conscience doesn't teach you things like a rule book or some authority talking down to you. Your conscience develops a relationship with you over time. And in fact, if you don't listen to it a little bit, if you don't develop that relationship, that either your small voice in your head or a feeling you get, uh, then it's not going to teach you squat. You actually have to develop and really work at it, um, which, again, it's a critical analysis of your tendencies and your behavior and your actions, and it leads to a, a better life, or hopefully it does. But the other part of the Pinocchio thing, and when you wish upon a star, so there's a line that let's become lovers of fate. So it's a hard truth. I think it is true in some sense that even if you do everything right in life, still in very badly yeah it's just a matter of how you face that darkness that unknown that tragedy and it's a lot easier to control that from an individual level than it is to control it from a societal level which is the the part that i definitely agree with with jordan here yes it's fascinating stuff and i mean i'm trying to distill down as i can remember off the top of my head 20 something hours of a lecture series Mm -hmm. so it's a lot um, and he is a bit all over the place. I, I would love to get him on the show. Um, there's, I'll, I'm going to be working towards that. They do a big five personality test. And he has this fairly well-regarded theory. Another guy who's done work like this is Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist. So it's not that conservatives and progressives or whatever, left, right, have different facts. They, they don't even agreeing on basic values. Right. And it's not even a conscious thing. It's like conservatives are more higher on wanting things to be orderly. And liberals or progressive people on the left want to be more open to ideas. So because when you're open, you can create and find new ways of living life. Whereas the conservatives have a point, too, of, no, if you create and you change things too much, you might not get back all the good you have right now. Mm-hmm. And the point is, they're both correct. And what they need to do, like you talking to your conscience, is talk to one another. Have a little balance. Yeah, have a little balance. But when you suggest a little balance, both sides go, eh, no. Well, and that brings me to a whole other point. You know, Trump's quote, if Trump said asshole, crap hole, whatever, um, it was inartful. That's usually how Donald Trump is. But the way Dick Durbin came out, the way the Democrats have handled this, and from what I can glean from what I've read, is when Trump said that in the meeting, nobody did anything. Nobody, like, got up and walked. How how rude, sir. You racist. No. What happened is probably Dick Durbin and some of the other Democrats like, furrowed their brow and went, oh, we're gonna use this this crap against them. And that's the problem with so much of our politics, with so much at stake, is all the language is about coming together and let's compromise, let's get things done. But the other part of the game, while you're trying to get things done, is how can I screw over the other guy so I'm the one in charge? Right. And it just leads to terrible incentives where you can't do anything in good faith. Mm-hmm. And my solution to that is 
reducing the amount of decisions made in one spot. The decisions made in one spot need to be very, very big decisions. Like, don't kill people. And even then, that's enforced at a local level. But generally, respect people's life, their liberty, and how they want to pursue their happiness. I know that's cliche, but it tends to work. Just my bias. Yeah, but when you're talking about vague notions of life and liberty... It is sentimentally us. Then you get the questions. Well, how do you define life? When does life start? When does life end? Oh, yeah. How do you define liberty? When does liberty start? When does liberty end? When is, an, when is liberty encroached upon by other people, and how do I encroach on other people's liberty? These are all very, very unspecific questions about unspecific things that require very specific answers. It's almost like it can't be done in the hypothetical or before people act. It kind of needs to be done between people. You have these goal posts. <laughs> you set out a goal, and that's why I want it local. Because it's much easier, even if you can't meet a thousand people we can't meet the thousands of people in montgomery right but you can reach them through television through a radio talk show through town hall meetings and you might you know know a guy who knows that guy knows that guy mm-hmm. and you can eventually if you have to meet somebody see them face to face the problem for me is the discomfort i feel at putting decisions in the hands of other people i agree with that i'm much more comfortable making decisions for myself and and this is just a psychological flaw, mm. that makes me much more comfortable making decisions about other people. <laughs> so the, the way I see it is these, these people that they want more power, mm. it's because they've made a particular decision that, ins- that affects their f- sphere of influence, right? Mm-hmm. And the, be- the beautiful part of this country is other people in other spheres of influences can make those exact same types of decisions. But as soon as someone in power sees it and they make a different decision, so like, let's say you don't believe in abortion. Let's say I do believe in abortion, right? Yeah. We're both in charge of our respective state governments regarding pro-life and pro-choice. Yeah. Someone who wants more power will see that you make the decision that abortion is cool. Like you can, you're... Your, was it pro-choice? Yeah, that's yeah, okay. what it's called. Yeah, yeah. so they see that you're pro-choice and they're like, hmm, I don't like that. Right. So instead of giving you the ability to make that decision, I'm going to come in from the top down, from the, the larger portion of the government and say, nobody can make this decision because I have therefore decided that life begins at conception. It's morally right. Mm-hmm. And it should be enforced. Mm-hmm. And I would much rather we celebrate the ability on smaller levels of government to decide these things rather than celebrate the decisions made about the choices. Mm. Well, I think we're in agreement. I wonder how many people understand what we're talking about. Then. Well, you know, I'm not very good at explaining things. I'm trying to think of horse puns at the same time. Yeah, that's not unwise. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just decentralized things a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's federalism. Actual, true federalism. But again, it's very complicated because as soon as I want to let other people make those decisions, there's also the human side of me that's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to try every, <laughs> I, I'm going to disagree with your decision. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. That's not good. Well, one way I've, I've put it, it's something I think Socrates says, I'd rather suffer an injustice than commit one against other people. Hmm. So I'd rather run the risk of playing the martyr because of somebody's agenda to do what's correct rather than be the tyrant. Who's making martyrs because I think I know it's correct. Right. Which maybe that's a weak point of view. I don't know. People can characterize it however they like, but we have to hit a break here, man.
I forgot that we actually have ads to run. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, let's make that money. Keep the oh, lights on. But the album of the day picked it up this weekend. Pearl. Janis Joplin. Nice choice. And the song is, well, Cry Baby. Mm, I love that organ. Be right back. Listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And we go from Cry Baby to My Baby, Janis Joplin, Pearl, 1970-71. Troy is alongside me as always on Monday. We're both fighting back the tickle in the throat, the a sickness, that other type of tickle. Goodness. Ugh. What do you say we go to the phones, Troy? I think we got Nate on the line? Yeah, we got Nate. Hey, man, what's up? Hey, another beautiful day in the, the southeast. Yeah, and I turned on my radio this morning. You're sitting where I'm sitting right now, doing a show. It was a good job. Uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I was just trying to do Baron honestly, you know? Yeah, he is actually sick, so. Yeah, he, he sounded horrible, and I made him laugh on air. So uh, it, it, it kind of choked him up, and you could hear how sick he really was. Right, right. But, um, well, I like your, your mind? discussion tonight. Oh, thank you. Well, and uh, I, you know, you, you were talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all of the questions that come up when you go by those by those guidelines. But I think right now our problem is we think those are federal questions, and they're really state questions. They're really local mun- municipality questions, and we've gotten to the point where. Our government really thinks everything should be governed at a federal level. We should put laws into place or remove laws from a place and and really dictate the climate of America from coast to coast. You know, kind of a manifest destiny type of uh, governorship. And, you know, you and I agree a little bit on this in that we should give it back to the state that uh, there should be very few laws at the federal level and excuse me, municipalities, states, counties uh, should all be able to govern themselves. And if the population doesn't like it, well, then move to somewhere that does coincide with your worldview. Well, but I've also seen that these questions should be personal because I've seen on the local level, take, for instance, the school board. Give people a little bit right. of power, and they just behave badly. It's, it's a mess. It is amazing. Yeah. And it's not just school board. Places we've worked, you give somebody a little bit of power, say you're the boss, and 
the way some people behave with a tiny amount of power is it's amazing how much they abuse it. I think we 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 underestimate people and personal responsibility this day and age. We really don't believe that people can pick the best uh, solutions for themselves and manage their money, manage their health care, manage uh, their lives on their own and don't need uh, intervention at any level. Well, and I also worry that people are under the illusion, and I think it is an illusion, that you can stop suffering and tragedy by creating powerful institutions. Maybe to right. a certain degree you can, but I think ultimately that is a fool's errand. You're not going to stop that. Well, and I, like I got into an argument with a person the other day who made the statement, uh, you know, well, health care is a human right. Mm -hmm. I said, it's, it's no, dying is a human right. You have the right to die. Everybody does. And everybody does die. And you have the right to take care of yourself and... You know, you may be, you know, be befallen with disease or a condition, but no one has the right to live forever. And I think a lot of times when people say they have the right to health care, that's what they actually mean. They don't have the right to die early, hmm. and they're they're trying to cheat death. I well, think and it everybody is, has the right. Well, let's be clear yeah. though. That is a, the fact you just stated. Everybody's going to die. Well, maybe it's not true. Some technological innovations, but. I mean, that is a tragic fact, so we can try to deal with it the best we can, that people have dignity when that day comes, that exactly. this is why we build up social institutions, they don't necessarily have to be political. I mean, most successful religious bodies, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, um, a lot of the Eastern religions, they have a charitable component, they have a selfless right. component, and if you're not willing to sacrifice or... You don't have to put it in terms of sacrifice. You're not willing to value things, people outside of yourself. Then, yeah, society can rot. So there does need to be right. some effort to help people with the biggest tragedy that death is here to come. What a what a fun topic, folks. Uh, but also, you know, through the other you know pitfalls that life brings, and you just, yeah, exactly. I, I'm all for we to look out for one another, but I just don't like think with the that. Rolling. Hmm. Well, like with the Rollins yeah. uh, and Greg's interaction with them, I see more charity and more caring from man through individual acts of kindness than I do through government. Yeah, Troy doesn't... And that's a prime example. I don't think Troy knows his story. Greg, this past summer, uh, met a couple, Keith and Sherry Rowland, and Sherry had lung cancer. Was very met her at the cancer center. And they said something about we're not even going to be able to feed our dogs, so Greg took it upon himself. Let's raise money. And I'm, I hope I'm not offending the audience too much, but you know who you are. That Most of what we do here on these radio air, airwaves is we kvetch. We bitch. We, we, the politics is annoying, and it's terrible, and we wish it went our way, so we, we get negative often. But what happened when Greg said, can we help these people? Mm -hmm. Is everybody dropped that? point of view of, of being critical and said, here's money. Let's help them. Hmm. And raised thousands of dollars did to help them. And uh, one twist of faith that I think showed where some of our government welfare programs failed is because all that money that came in, one-time donations, the government cut back her disability. Interesting. S saying that, you, you oh, you made more income than you reported. 
for a charity they didn't expect. And it's just these systems have become so impersonal and bureaucratic. As opposed to, oh, there are people right in front of you suffering. Do you have the means to help them? Then do it. It drives me crazy. that we, Everything's got to be some law, some rule, some box to check off or tick off. Instead of, oh, do we have the local institutions there, the networks there, to help people in need? As opposed to, here's a check from the federal government. No doubt that the federal government gives people checks. My mom, for instance, she paid in her whole life working. She got disability, but it took a long time to get that disability. Mm-hmm. And just, is this the most efficient and the most humane way we can help one another? And it had me, that very instance had me thinking that way because I saw this amazing movement by folks who are usually so caught up in politics. They say a lot of negative things. Then they did this beautiful thing. And then the government essentially punishes the people they were trying to help because of the beautiful thing that was done. Mm-hmm. Drove me up a wall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, people do and can help one another. and doesn't always have to be the most tragic uh, with cancer. It can be simple things, like somebody's having a bad day. You sit and you ask him, hey, how you doing? And you have a conversation with him. It can be very simple little things like that. But, uh, Nate, I appreciate the call, man. Are you back in Atlanta? Thank you, sir. All right. All right have a good one. You too. Uh, the, yeah, it's... It's a matter of, I think, I've gone through a change of, you've seen it, that it was about the rule for me, or the cause. It's like, for a little while, it was about the conservative cause. Obama sucks. I still think Obama sucked in a lot of ways. But <laughs> I, I realized, I can't just be hypercritical of this guy all the time. Some stuff he did, it's fine. It, it, it's exhausting. It is. It's exhausting. And now I see folks on the left... Who are doing the same thing to Trump. And I'm like, yeah, there's plenty of things Trump does I don't like. Mm-hmm. But every tweet he does, you're going to post something about it? Mm-hmm. You're, you're giving... It's something somebody said to me after I had that terrible heartbreak. After my mom died. Mm-hmm. The love affair going wrong. I thought it was going to be some like Elizabethtown rom-com. Like, the girl's going to make me feel better and save me. It was terrible. And somebody said to me, I don't know if it was you or somebody else. Saying, you're giving so much power to that person. Ooh, that might have been me. <laughs> no, but really, it was correct. You're giving all this power to this person, and you can't control them. So you're letting this person who's beyond your control run your life. Yeah. And I sat back and went, well, that's correct on that level. And also, yelling about the federal government and what they do. Most people, even if you vote, you don't have power over them. But you're renting out your mind or your emotions, whether it's on social media or not. Mm-hmm. To these things that are just going to drive you mad. Yeah. And that's that's why, like, even on Twitter, I am on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook okay. or anything. So even on Twitter, I follow my sports teams and Reuters. And if Reuters hits me with an opinion piece, I click, I don't want to see that tweet. I just want the bare bones. Give me, yeah. hey, it took 38 minutes for them to call off the alarm in Hawaii. I want that. Give me that. You know, right. I don't want to hear about Logan Paul <laughs> or Chelsea Manning running for Senate. Yeah, that popped up. <laughs> I hit. I don't want to see this tweet. I haven't seen another tweet about that individual since then. Good. It's yeah. It's a matter of I think taking responsibility for your own life and your own well-being and realizing following a lot of this crap is not helping my well-being. 
Not at all. It's hard enough as it is just trying to live a system of values that you feel betters yourself, much less create meaning in your own life. Then we got to talk about everybody else and the whole government and everything. It's exhausting. It's an existential crisis waiting to happen. And some days I get up and I just don't want to deal with it, man. Well, maybe you can start doing yoga with me in the morning. Maybe. Or listening to Janice. Yeah. Well, good show. Good show, sir. I'll be back tomorrow night, folks. Talk to y'all later. Me and my Bobby again. Jimmy Clark.